Welcome to Tech Intersect. I'm your host, Tanya Evans, and my life and work exist at the heart of law, business, and technology. Yeah, I've earned a few fancy titles and degrees over the years, but the bottom line is I'm a writer, speaker, teacher, and lifelong learner. And I'm really excited that you've joined me on this journey. So what is Tech Intersect? Well, it's authentic, empowering conversations with really interesting guests who demystify complex topics to prepare you for the future, because your future is now. And it exists where law, business, and tech intersect. Get ready to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this first episode of Tech Intersect Summer Class. It's a series that is powered by Advantage Evans, and summer school is in session with me, your favorite professor, Tanya Evans, a.k.a. hashtag CEO of me. And if you haven't heard what the summer class series is all about, be sure to head back to episode 123 for a brief overview. The TLDR version is that I've moved to a bi-weekly format, and I'm revisiting some of the most popular interview conversations and re-examining some of the most important topics. And this episode is a fantastic example because I'm actually returning to two of the most popular tech intersect topics. First, crypto decentralized finance, or DeFi, and the Black Investor. It was an episode that I did in response to the 2022 Ariel Schwab Black Investor Survey. And then I'll take a closer look at just what DeFi actually is. As the former chair of the MakerDAO's Maker Ecosystem Growth Foundation and current chair of an advisory board to the Universal DeFi Holding Company, which is essentially a VC that funds projects that are building on established DeFi protocols in the Ethereum ecosystem. So I definitely believe in the power and promise of DeFi as a tool of economic empowerment. But DeFi certainly isn't without its flaws, because although it can be used to leverage both fungible and non-fungible crypto assets to generate passive income and create and manage loans and, and much, much more, and that can be great, especially for those systemically marginalized in banking and capital markets. You know that I talk about that early and often. It's critically important as a matter of economic inclusion, access, and transparency. But the reality is that like any business endeavor, any business sector, legitimate projects will fail and disappear or end up in bankruptcy. And then, of course, there are the software bugs and outright scams and rug pulls. And there's always the danger of user error and loss of funds when self-custody goes terribly, terribly wrong. So as with any investment, there is also a reason to proceed with significant caution and D-Y-O-R or do your own research. Of course, the operative word in that last sentence is proceed. And in fact, that's exactly what members of my AE Explore Live Club are working on right now. It's what I call the NRS plan, the next right step. And next means to understand the next step, to identify what your previous steps have been in light of your overall short and long-term investing and wealth accumulation and management goals. The next is to understand the next step, not the thousandth step, but the next step, to identify also what your previous steps have been to get you to this point in light of your overall short and long-term investing 
and wealth accumulation and management goals. The next word, right, that's that's a little tricky because right suggests that there is a wrong. So look at the idea of right in next right step as an exploration of the available options based on high quality information because when choices are informed and well-informed, we all make better decisions. The cheat code for that part is new information gives the opportunity for a new decision. So new information, new decision. And then the final word, that's the action item, step. It is an action word that means move forward. It's all about momentum. It's not about pontificating and sitting on the sidelines and intellectualizing about what might be, but to actually take some meaningful step, just as if you're playing, you know, that that old schoolyard game, getting warmer, getting colder. Your next right step should be in the direction of getting warmer to the life in the future of work and wealth and creativity that you want to have in this generation and in the next. So it's all about momentum, work on your NRS plan and proceed. And as you listen to this episode and the episodes to follow, definitely let me know what you think. Let me know what you think about crypto and DeFi and the future of wealth. And as it relates to this particular topic about black and brown investors, marginalized investors, why black investors in particular are over-indexing in crypto adoption while stock investment remains relatively low. Should systemically marginalized investors steer clear of crypto and stay on the sidelines? Or is it time to lace up and get into the game? I think you already know my take, but I'm interested in hearing yours. So let's connect and let's grow. Be sure to tag me on the Twitters at IPProfEvans and also be sure to use the hashtag TechIntersect. Enjoy this first summer class series episode. Again, class is in session. It's time to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. You are listening to the Tech Intersect podcast with Professor Tanya M. Evans. Powered by Advantage Evans. Now back to DeFi. Cryptocurrencies and DeFi will play a key and pivotal role in economic empowerment, financial inclusion, and creating generational wealth to begin to overcome the devastating impacts of the wealth gap in the United States. Now, Chainalysis reported this year that global cryptocurrency adoption is skyrocketing. And also that adoption in emerging markets is growing. It's powered by peer-to-peer platforms and growing transaction volume for centralized services and also the explosive growth of DeFi that's driving cryptocurrency usage in the developed world and also countries that already had substantial adoption while peer-to-peer platforms are really driving new adoption in more emerging markets. One of the best ways to see the potential of DeFi is to understand the problems that exist today. And this summary is based off of information that is found at ethereum.org. But some people aren't granted access to set up a bank account or use financial services, so the unbanked or underbanked. 
There's also a lack of access to financial services that can prevent people from being employed. Financial services can block you from actually getting paid. Governments and centralized institutions can close down entire markets at will. Trading hours are often limited to business hours of a specific time zone. Money transfers or money transmission can take days. And that's largely based on internal human processes, which also just causes a lot of friction and costs a lot of money. And there's a premium to financial services because intermediary institutions need their cut. Hello, rent seekers. And then there's the systemic discrimination of black and brown people, of women, for example, that gatekeepers use to perpetuate racist, exclusionary financial systems because ownership and financial success is power. This is not financial or legal advice, but this is my opinion. DeFi creates financial services that run without a centralized institution. And there are many benefits and also some disadvantages of DeFi. And and look, I shoot straight. I keep it real during these masterclasses. And in the words of my amazing Nana, I believe very strongly in getting good counsel, but doing your own deciding. So I want to give you the information so that you are more empowered and informed to make good choices. Now, some of DeFi's benefits include borrowers being able to use their own crypto as collateral, which allows them to borrow without a credit score and and therefore secure a loan at any time of the day with a few clicks of a button and without red tape or worse yet, that systemic discrimination I mentioned. DeFi is a completely new financial system. It was created to hold everyone to the same standards and to give everyone the same opportunities. It's democracy at its finest. A DeFi platform can allow borrowers to apply for a loan without considering your race or ethnicity, your gender, your economic status, or your credit score and to avoid that invasive process of securing a loan. It simply doesn't exist in the DeFi space. Either you have the collateral or you don't, and it doesn't matter who you are. That's a primary advantage of DeFi. It's access for all. DeFi is a collective term for financial products and services that are accessible to anyone who can use Ethereum, anyone with an internet connection. And with DeFi, Markets are always open 24-7, 365. Now, of course, this is the same for Bitcoin and other crypto more generally. But with this 24-7, 365 increased access, that increases access around the world to capital and also to liquidity. There are no borders, no centralized authorities who can block payments or deny you access to anything. But contrary to popular misconception, regulators do exercise control in the space. Because at some point, you have to trade your fiat, which is government-issued currency like the almighty dollar. You have to trade your fiat for crypto. You're using your fiat to buy crypto, usually at a centralized exchange. And that means you have to create an account and provide information to satisfy the K-Y-C-A-M-L, or Know Your Customer Anti-Money Laundering Laws. And as I mentioned, you have to pay taxes. So that's clearly the ultimate regulation. (laughs) Regulation at its finest, I assure you. 
So to sum it all up, what we'll touch on during the masterclass and what I cover in much greater depth in my Decode the Future course is that I believe in my humble estimation that DeFi has the potential to completely reinvent the world's financial systems. Emerges the scale and familiarity of the traditional economy with the security and efficiency and transparency of the public blockchain that allows for innovation and growth, really like we haven't seen in modern times. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. are listening to the Tech Intersect podcast with Professor Tanya M. Evans. Powered by Advantage Evans. Let's get started with today's topic, which is unpacking the recently released 2022 Arielle Schwab Black Investor Survey. I hosted a Twitter space about this topic. I think that it's still up. I think you have access to it for 30 days. So definitely go to IP Prof Evans on Twitter or click through in the show notes and check out my Twitter feed. If you want to hear the Twitter space conversation with me and Clev Mesador and a few other thought leaders in the space about this topic, but I wanted to do a deeper dive on the podcast. I'm also continuing a conversation about Black investors in the crypto and DeFi spaces at a virtual event hosted by the Office of the Comptroller of Currency with the acting Comptroller Michael Sue. For more information and to participate, visit occ.treasury.gov, G-O-V, or occ.treasury.gov for more information and to participate. Now, the objective of this annual Black Investor Survey that's happened for over two decades is conducted by Ariel Investments, founded by Melody Hobson and Schwab, the bank, the investment uh, company and bank. And it seeks to identify similarities and differences between middle-class Black and white Americans focusing specifically on savings and investing, especially in stocks. And they do this every year in order to examine the factors, particularly past influences and underlying beliefs that may impact how Black and white Americans think about financial matters. And also to assess the expectations and sentiment that Black and white Americans face in their financial future, and finally, to determine any shifts in attitudes over time or behaviors that have occurred. And so this is the first time they actually took a close look at crypto. So 
they go through in terms of their specific methodology, which I always think is important in order to get a clear picture and view of the approach that researchers and data analysts are taking with respect to the topic. Here, the methodology was an online survey of approximately 18 minutes in length. It was conducted during the period of January 4th through January 13th of 2022 with a sample provided by opt-in consumer panels. And there was a random sample, mixed genders, had to be 18 years of age or older with a household income of at least $50,000 in 2021. And the interviewee had to be the primary or shared decision maker for household financial decisions. A total of 2,057 surveys were completed, 1,035 among those identifying as Black and 1,002 among those identifying as White. So some initial findings from the survey include an analysis, again, of cryptos or cryptocurrencies, crypto assets described and identified as risky investments, and noting that risky investments are growing in popularity, especially among younger Black investors. Okay, so crypto is definitely volatile. It is a nascent asset class, to be sure. And it's interesting, these statistics, and I encourage you, there's a link in the show notes to the survey. I want you to take a a closer look. I'm only hitting the high notes of it, but I I want you to see for yourself and D-Y-O-R, do your own research. But 25% of Black Americans currently own cryptocurrency. That's an amazing statistic. I'm very excited about that statistic, but clearly I am biased. One quarter of Black Americans currently own cryptocurrency, and among Black investors under 40, that jumps to 38%. Only 15% of white Americans own cryptocurrency, although this rises to 29% of white investors under 40. So it's definitely a generational divide with respect to crypto adoption and ownership. Twice as many Black Americans ranked cryptocurrency as the best investment choice overall, 8% of Black Americans versus 4% of white Americans. And among Black investors, 23% cited excitement about cryptocurrency as the reason they even started investing in general. And 11% indicated cryptocurrency was their first investment compared to 10% and 4% respectively for white investors. I'm really excited about that statistic as well. I'll talk more about that in a moment. And finally, Black investors are less likely than their white counterparts to see cryptocurrency as risky, 68% to 73%, and more likely to believe it is safe, 33% to 18%. That is a pretty wide gap, to be sure. The survey also goes on to explore or at least identify the fact that Black and white Americans are jumping into the crypto space with, quote unquote, without all the facts. I don't know that any of us have all of the facts. This is a continual process of crypto education. I spend all day, every day, and twice on Sunday actually focused on crypto education, and I'm learning something new every day. But the statistics show that 29% of Black Americans reported that they'd invested in something they didn't fully understand and did so because it seemed like 
their quotes, a sure deal, end quote. One third of Black investors said they invested in something based on something they saw on social media. Although from what I read, I can't fully appreciate or identify what specific social media platforms. Are they talking about the internet or literally Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, for example? So I'd like more information about that. And finally, Black investors are more than twice as likely to trust social media as an information source on investing and finances. Now, on the upside, Black Americans are saving and investing significantly more than they did in 2020, with the highest contributions coming from new investors, high earners, and young respondents. And Black Americans are just as likely as white Americans to discuss investing with their families, which is essential to prepare future generations for wealth accumulation, particularly with capital assets. But trust in legacy financial institutions is still persistently and chronically very low. The surveyors conclude that there is a clear need for financial institutions to build trust and to address the educational gap between Black and white investors. I believe it is this data point that is the very reason that crypto assets and decentralized finance are so attractive to Black investors, especially digital natives. The idea of a trusted intermediary, um, a bank, for example, is no longer needed in the crypto space in order to have a secure way to exchange value and leverage crypto assets in order to earn interest, for example, in the DeFi space or extract value like equity out of a home all without the gatekeepers in a system that is plagued with systemic ills like racism and sexism that has not proved itself to be trustworthy with respect to the Black community. This distrust is well-earned and reaches back to the first bank, even before, certainly, but I'm focused on the first bank created specifically for Black people in America after emancipation, the Freedmen's Bank. And so I wanted to give you a little context and history about this since information comes from the Treasury Department's website, but there are many, many resources out there to learn more about the Freedmen's Bank, its origins, its rise and precipitous fall as well. But essentially with the passage of the 13th Amendment and the end of the Civil War in 1865, slavery was finally abolished in the United States. The practice, of course, had existed on the American continent for more than 200 years, but almost overnight, nearly 4 million African-American men, women, and children were in fact free. Stick a pin in that or go back to a previous episode where I talk about the importance of Juneteenth. If you don't know the connection between emancipation and Juneteenth, pause this episode, go back to the Juneteenth episode, and then come back here. Um, but for those who are familiar, Let's press on. With the South in ruins, they faced disorder and certainly danger. Most enslaved and then freed Blacks in America had no home, had no money, had no work. And their relatives, because of slavery, the pernicious, pernicious institution of slavery, their relatives were sold all over the country, scattered. It's nearly impossible to find folks. So in order to address the needs of the newly freed enslaved people, the United States government created the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, 
and abandoned lands, commonly known as the Freedmen's Bureau. And it provided food and housing, medical aid to tens of thousands of freed, enslaved, formerly enslaved people. It attempted at least to locate and relocate relatives and to reunite families. And the goal was to help to establish schools all across the South for Blacks in America. Meanwhile, a group of missionaries and abolitionists and businessmen saw that African-Americans would need support and education to become financially secure. So the group worked to create a savings bank for the formerly enslaved peoples and their families. In 1865, the bank was created, the Freedmen's Savings and Trust Company, often called the Freedmen's Bank, opened its doors for business. That's 1865. And the Freedmen's Savings and Trust Company was a private corporation. It was chartered by an act of the United States government signed by President Abraham Lincoln. And it was created to help develop the newly freed, formerly enslaved people as they endeavored to become financially stable in a new environment. Originally, the bank was headquartered in New York, later moved to Washington, D.C., and eventually there were 37 locations across 17 states. Sounds too good to be true, and it is. It had a very unceremonious demise. In 1867, the Freedmen's Bank moved its headquarters, as I mentioned, from New York City to Washington, D.C. A group of local bankers and politicians took hold its businessmen began to take control. It is that control that became a very problematic gatekeeper between access to the funds and the funds themselves. The trustees began to invest in real estate projects and railroads. They made risky loans to friends, some with no collateral. Sounds really familiar. It's an age-old tale. We're talking in the mid to late 1800s. Sounds a lot like what happened in 2008, 2009, with the banking crisis, same fill-in-the-blank, different century. Some of the trustees were in charge of other banks as well. And when they made bad loans at those banks that serviced white people, they transferred the bad loans on that ledger to the Freedmen's Bank. So as Frederick Douglass, famous writer and speaker, widely respected in the African-American community, of course, would later describe it. The bank had become, quote, the black man's cow, but the white man's milk. And when a financial panic hit the country in 1873, most of the Freedmen's Bank's investments lost value or became worthless. Clearly, the bank was doomed. Several branches were hit by bank runs when some, everybody goes at the same time to get their money out. If it's not fully backed and fully leveraged, everybody can't get their money out, Right. Savings and loans requires that you save so that the bank can loan and earn money on your money, right? Making money on other people's money. And by other people, I mean us. So we have a run on the bank. Crowds of depositors demanded their money. Branches met some demands, but the cash reserves for the Freedmen's Bank were absolutely drained. A number of trustees resigned. And in the meantime, nobody had been watching the trustees and what they were doing. There was a lack of transparency and accountability. 
The Congress was supposed to supervise the Freedmen's Bank, but paid little attention. Again, sounds very familiar. And when Congress finally sent the comptroller of the currency to look carefully at the bank's books, it was too late. And in an attempt to save the bank, the trustees asked Frederick Douglass to replace bank president John Alvord. Also a very familiar playbook. When things are going downhill, appoint a Black person as a figurehead. And by the time you step in, it's already a dumpster fire, a flaming hot mess. He accepted the position, not knowing how bad the situation was, but of course he soon realized he was, in his words, married to a corpse. Six weeks after taking the job, he told Congress to shut the bank down. The trustees fought the closing at first, but then soon realized that the bank could not be saved. And so in June of 1874, the Freedmen's Bank was closed. Now, turning back to the Ariel Schwab survey, it's unsurprising that when it comes to growing and protecting one's money or assets that 31% of Black Americans compared to 21% of whites surveyed trusted technology. In fact, Black Americans trusted people least at 32% and institutions at 37% compared to whites who trusted people the most at 45%, followed by institutions at 34%. And who are the people? Presumably trusted advisors. And here's where representation matters and why I think the survey misses the mark in its analysis of the data. The failures, as reported by the survey, seem to fall decidedly on the shoulders of investors or would-be investors, and not on the system made up of people who have not prioritized increasing and sustaining and protecting Black investment. In January of this year, CNBC and other news outlets reported the favorable increase of Black and Brown financial planners and of women. But the numbers show a clear and stark reflection of the people available to Black investors who seek to build trust through shared experience. There were 76,435 white financial planners in 2021, about 83% of the total, dwarfing the other racial and ethnic groups. About 4% or just over 3,600 of CFPs are Asian or Pacific Islanders. Almost 3%, about 2,500 are Hispanic or Latino. And over 1,600, nearly 2%, which means under 2%, are Black or African American. And that is the improvement that was being reported on. Now, by comparison, the U.S. population is about 76% white, 19% Hispanic or Latino, 13% Black or African American, and 6% Asian, according to Census Bureau data. Folks, we'll continue to have this conversation and really critique and engage with the data of the legacy financial system, its systemic failures, the void that has been created that is allowing the possibility of closing the wealth gap between Black Americans and white Americans based on this novel nascent asset class that removes the barriers to participation, removes the barrier to information, 
access and this idea of transparency and self-determination and community and cooperative economics is all a part of the crypto community experience. It's not without flaws, but it does present an opportunity. I argue that we should approach this topic as a matter of social and economic justice. It's extremely progressive. And we're in the midst of Financial Literacy Month. It's important to have an honest conversation about the why of the data points, not just the what. And the survey casts what I consider to be showing my own bias, a familiar but dark pall over the viability of cryptocurrencies in general, Bitcoin in particular, and other assets without an accurate and balanced view of the power and the promise of crypto and decentralized ways to exchange value and amass a capital asset, given the essential role of capital assets and capital asset investment historically in inspiring increased financial literacy and creating generational wealth. My experience at Advantage Evans and a number of outlets where I have educated at this point thousands of people, including a majority of Black people and women. Access to disintermediated financial tools and products and investments that have created a new class of investment built on autonomy, agency, and as I mentioned, self-determination, cooperative economics, Kwanzaa principles in a transparent, accessible, emerging market. Volatile? Yes. Nascent? Yes. Here to stay? 100% yes. So it's time for legacy financial advisors and institutions to take a closer look, especially those advising the Black community. Responsible financial literacy now includes empowering the Black community to succeed in the future of money and wealth, because it's true, the future is now. And it can be on our own terms if we increase not only our financial literacy, but our crypto literacy to be empowered in the future of work, wealth, and creativity. Okay, before we sign off, please take a moment to like, comment, and share this episode and this podcast with your networks. Follow me on social media and let me know what topics you'd like to hear more of and who you want to hear from. And finally, a quick reminder on digital safety. There are a ton of scammers and bots out there on social media impersonating me and others and promoting scams, etc. All the fake engagement. So just to be clear, now hear this. I will never slide into your DMs to say peace and blessings or hey, or to push any Forex or none of those things. I will never reach out to solicit your time or your money in DMs. All the information that I provide is in this podcast and on my websites at proftanyaevans.com and, of course, advantageevans.com and techintersectpodcast.com. I'm not a crypto trader. I'm an educator and an attorney licensed in four states. Thank you very much. I'm here to inform, inspire, and empower. No cap and no forex. <laughs> so be careful make good choices, and to help you protect yourself out here in these social media and crypto streets, I've developed an entire free masterclass about the topic. So check out 
secureyourcryptobag.com for more information. That's secureyourcryptobag.com. Okay, that's all for now. I look forward to spending this summer in session with you. So until next time, continue to shine.